Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob again. Welcome to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today I've got Daniel Major, who's CEO of Gov, Govy X Uranium, who are a mineral resources company f- focused on the exploration and development of uranium properties in Africa. They are TSX listed, um, and their principal objective is to become a magnificent uranium producer through continued exploration and development of its mine-permitted projects in Nigeria, Zambia, and Mali. So, welcome, Daniel. Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. So um, just want to kick off with yourself, just giving us a, an overview of, of yourself and of your company. Um, and then I have a handful of questions that I want to uh, ask you afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Let me deal with the company first. So the yeah. company is, Go- is GoVX. Um, it is Africa-focused uranium. Uh, we have three projects. Um, the first one is actually in Niger, not Nigeria. Okay, so that's that. all right. <laughs> no, you won't be the first person who's gone down that route. <laughs> uh, Niger is, um, just for those who don't know, is right in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It um, used to be a French protectorate, um, so it's a French West Africa uh, country. It is projects right in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Um, we started that project back in 2007. Um, we did a massive drilling campaign, over 600,000 meters of drilling on it, took it all the way through to mine permitted in 2016. Um, and literally with that project, we've been focused on improving it and waiting for the uranium market to recover. Um, in 2016, we acquired two more projects, one in um, Zambia, Matanga. Um, and to Matanga, we added another project, uh, Chirundu, because it was contiguous so, and it scaled that one up. That one is also mine permitted and ready to go. Uh, and then the last one is Falea, which is in Mali, up against the Guinea-Senegal border. Um, so we focus really only on uranium projects. Uh, we don't li- like to diversify too much. Um, and we're very comfortable operating in Africa. I mean, you know, we understand how Africa works. Um, there are 54 countries in Africa. So as long as you ex- start with that as your point and not think that Africa is, a co- is just one big country and a continent, um, that helps you a lot um, to go forward. So, you know, we are looking to get into production. Um, that is really where we are. We see great growth in the uranium market. I mean, nuclear demand is growing. Um, ex- increasingly so as everybody's getting behind the whole uh, global warming, green deal, um, temperature increase argument and realizing that, you know, if you want to accelerate the amount of green energy, uh, the quickest way of doing it is nuclear. Uh, and the cleanest way of doing it is actually nuclear. Um, I mean, for those who don't know, you need 17 times as much material to build the same amount of power from wind and, nu- and solar as you do from nuclear. So if you want 17 times as many holes in the ground to dig those minerals out, then go the other way. But, That's an you know, interesting fact. Yeah, you also need 450 times the area. Right. So you have to cover vast parts of ground just to generate the same amount of energy. So. 
it's a lot of compact power in nuclear and, and is very safe. Um, for myself, um, I am a mining engineer by trade. I started my, I kept, went to the Camborne Schools of Mines down in Cornwall uh, in the good old days when it was in Camborne. Uh, it's now in Falmouth. Um, and uh, went from there to work for Rio Tinto at Rossing Uranium in uh, what was then Southwest Africa, became Namibia. Um, then I went to the Northern Transvaal, which has got a completely different name now, and I'll probably pronounce it wrong, so I won't even try, um, doing the first open pit platinum mine um, for what was then JCI Platinum, became Amplats. Um, then I worked for myself, doing mine design work for other people. Uh, then I went to work for the old JCI, it doesn't exist anymore, the Johannesburg Consolidated Investments, doing M&A work and projects work for them. Um, then I went to work for HSBC as a platinum analyst. I was number two rated within 10 months. Um, and then I went to, they moved me to London to move, do the mining houses because Anglo and co were moving onto the London exchange. So I was mining house analyst for HSBC, part of their number one global team. Um, and then went to JP Morgan for a while. And then after seven years as being an analyst, I decided I, it was changing as an industry and I needed to get back into doing real mining again. Um, so I went to work in Russia four years. Okay. So I was working with um, Basic Element, which is owned by um, Oleg Deripaska. Uh, he owns Rusal, and I was looking after the Molly business. We were reducing eight percent of the world's ferromoly out of Russia, uh, and then I got handed the pulp and paper business as well to look after. So I did that for four years uh, until things changed in the global environment uh, a lot, and. Uh, the, 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 you know, the financial structure of basic element changed and it was logical to move on to somewhere else. So I went into South America for a while doing exploration, manganese and gold, and then gold mining in Canada and Peru, uh, underground gold mining, and then back into Africa now with GoVX since 2012. Yeah. So you've, you obviously you've been in a few commodities. I was going to say you've been in um, mining uranium and, and platinum uh, initially, and then obviously you mentioned about gold. But... I suppose when you first started, you were out in uranium, and that's where you are now. Have you predominantly been working and in, in uh, uranium, and is that and is that your sort of expertise? Would you say at the moment? Um, <laughs> I'm not I would really. joking. I would jokingly say I'm a mining engineer, so I we're a jack, we're jacks of all trades, master yeah. of absolutely nothing. Um, look, at the end of the day, you know, sitting as a mining engineer, you know. There is one thing I've realized, having done so many commodities, because I've done manganese as well, and I've done chrome and diamonds and all sorts of other things yeah. as a consultant. Actually, there's very little difference between any of them. I mean, there are some technicality differences in the processing and in the mining methodology. But, you know, anyone who's smart enough can figure out very quickly, uh, you don't have to be that smart. I've been doing this job for a long time, so it can't be, can't be that difficult. You know, that, you know, you've pretty well figured out. I mean, even pulp and paper is the same as mining. Okay. I mean, you cut a tree down, you dig a rock out of the ground. I mean, you, therefore, you, you then pulp, which is the same as comminution in a processing plant, and then you add, you know, your bleaching agents and your various acids and stuff to break the pulp down. And then you convert it into a packaging at the end. So, you know, when you look at a, a pulp and paper business, it pretty well mimics the mining industry. You're just doing things in a slightly different way. And it's the value adds that are on the end. As long as you understand that bit and you can learn that pretty quickly. Um, yeah. You know, you can transfer your knowledge from one place to the other. Most of it's much the same. Yeah. How did you find going into 
you said obviously you ran into the banking and finance sector for a period of time. How did you how did you find that transition from going obviously from a from a mine site into that kind of corporate world and not necessarily working in in the for a mining company, but working in the finance finance. Yeah, industry? I did it, I did it on purpose as well. Um, I had been working with as um, over JCI and we'd be going through a project. Gold gold at the time was like plummeting down to two forty five. It was in the good old days of gold. Um, and we worked on one particular project and did all this work. And then someone smart in the financing department saved like $300 million on the refinancing structure. And you go, wow, there's a lot more power in the financial. I this. Yeah, then there is all this hard work that we just done to add a couple of dollars, cut dollars out of the costs. Um, and, uh, and so it was an opportunity to understand the other side of the mining industry, what drives mining companies, um, investors, financing, that side of it. And, and you know, as an engineer, you, you're, you're on the ground, you're doing all the design, you're just focused on costs and pounds or whatever it is you're producing tons. And you, you, you miss what drives a company uh, and how shareholders look at companies and investors look at companies. And so it's fascinating to come out and be on the other side of that fence. And, um, realize that there's a whole different you know ecosystem um that drives our industry um and is a very big part because of course that's where a lot of the money comes from yeah uh, particularly in the junior end of the business so yeah i mean yeah my first day i walked in and they asked for my um earnings forecasts and that my first question was what is a pe <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was like, that's what a pe is <laughs> ah, okay fine so I had to go and kind of figure out how to do the the advising. And, and I had to learn accounting, which I knew nothing about beforehand. Yeah. As well. So, yeah. yeah, you know, it set me up to be able to move into the, the business model as a, you know, as a CEO of a company. Yeah. Would you advise that career path if someone was going into maybe a COO, CEO, et cetera, into that senior management? Would you advise them to go out into a finance, uh, like a yeah, finance I, house I, I, for I a couple would. of years? I would. And the reason I would say that is that when I meet, talk to people generally in the industry as well, people tend to come from two sides. They're either, you know, CEOs. A lot of them have come as as miners or developers and that. So they're totally one side of it. Yeah. And they do not understand anything about the market side of it at all. You know, understanding what different funds are, where you fit. And, and a lot of the People taking them around struggle with that. Or they come from that other side. They understand all the banking and don't know anything about the mining bit itself. And so I think it does help you round yourself out um, as as an engineer uh, or at least as a finance guy. I mean, it's probably easier for the engineers to go that way than the other way. Yeah. But it does help you round out to understand what the big picture is um, of how it all works together. Um, because you, you do need to understand what your investors are looking for and how they deal with it. Um, and appreciate, you know, what drives a company share price, um, and it's financing. So it, it makes you a, a much more, you know, flexible person. Yeah, certainly. I want to go back to, um, obviously go VX. Mm. Um, how comes you, how comes you, the company was focusing on Africa? Was there any particular reason? Uh, our first project was on Africa. So the founder, Govin Friedland, who's the son of uh, Robert Friedland, the you know the, the world famous yeah. entrepreneur, money entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, he this opportunity came up. There were licenses for sale in Niger back in two thousand six, two thousand seven, 
Um, and he was living in China at the time. Um, and it became very clear to him that, um, that, you know, nuclear was going to be the way forward and clean energy, given the pollution issues there, were going to be a problem in China. Uh, so he kind of came in and got involved and drove this project through and got it to a point where it was looking for development. And and one thing we found is that, you know, communicating and working with good government is, is very, you know, as long as they're pragmatic and you're pragmatic with them, it gets done. And we found that all the way through getting our permits only took us six months, you know, um, and that was full IFC standard um, environmental impact assessment. We've been able to do a deal with the government now where we owe them money from the initial acquisition where which when when we did was 130 dollar uranium we're now down at 25 dollar uranium yeah. uh, and we believe we're turning a corner here um i just wish it would turn um the, i mean the fundamentals are there for it to turn you know we're able to sit down with the government and say look we do know owe you this money but let's do the deal in this way and we've agreed to negotiate that they will take an equity stake for now in the company it, the potential to sell it back at the in the future um and, and that's you know really useful um, and part of this is valuation as well. I mean, when you're having your projects valued at 20 cents a pound in the ground, you know, and you want to move to it, look at a different jurisdiction. Well, you know, if you're trying to do something in Canada where they're being valued at, you know, $2 a pound in the ground, we don't get credit for all the work we've done on our properties. So yeah. part of it's commercial. And I think the other reason for that is, you know, some, you know, we're, we're a relatively small company from that point of view. You cannot be all things to all people around the world. Yeah. And, you know, there are companies who try to have projects in Australia and Africa and Canada. And, and you're like, what are you focused on? I mean, how it's hard enough running a company when everything's in Africa and I live in the UK and the corporate office is in Vancouver and I've got to wait until three o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> for anyone to turn up to work. You know, it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, it's fine when you're a multi, you know, massive, great multi-global company like a BP where, they, you know, they have basically mini companies all over the place. Um, but, yeah, you, you have to focus. Yeah. Are you looking at any other countries or jurisdictions in Africa at all or just focusing on the three no, big we, countries? We, we, look, we look, but we don't see any value at this time on any of the others. Um, and also, you know, we I think we are – uh, our portfolio is full enough at this time. We need to get what we've done delivered uh, before we start adding to it. We've got a lot of expiration upside on our property, so it's not as though we need any more ground. Um, and we need to deliver the projects we've got. Yeah. How how easy or how difficult was it to set up in those in those countries? Um, were they and were they all different? They're, they're, well, two of them we acquired, so they were already set up. I mean, it, but it, but it, but let me put it this way: out of the 20 something i think 25 people got in the company um only four of them have expatriate passports everyone else is holding african passports yeah uh, in our company uh, i mean that's very much the trend going forward anyway um but in our case it's been a, you know we've, we've kept it that way on purpose yeah. um and, you know and you look at zambia it's a mining country um you know the skills are there um, Niger is a mining company, a uranium mining country. I mean, it's been mining uranium since 1971. Second mine started in 1978. So, you know, hell, they know how to mine uranium just as well as anybody else. Um, yeah. And Mali is a growing gold entity. Again, you know, a lot of skill sets, certainly on the geological side, um, with development on the mining side coming through. So, no, it's been easy. And you just got to look for the right people that, that work with you. Um, mm -hmm. And we've always sought to empower our guys on the ground. Um, you know, we don't like it that, you know, uh, 
people on the ground must know that they're the ones who are going into the ministry. They're the ones taking ownership of the project. You know, some companies like it to be the offshore, the expatriate Canadian or American or whatever goes in. And, you know, we're the guys who've got to go in to see the ministry. No, yeah. not in our case. It's the other way around. I prefer my guys on the ground to take ownership. It's a local project in a local country. Yeah. So drive it. Yeah. And obviously, if you were bringing on new people, would they have to have uranium experience? Is it a commodity where you... you actually need to know a lot more about it than say if it was gold or copper etc uh, again it depends where yeah. you were putting those people i mean if you went through the pipeline you know miners are miners i mean the mining yeah. you, you dig a hole in the ground um they're in different ways but i mean at, at the end of the day the skill set you really want with the mining guys is to deliver good mining the way that they're doing Planning do they design. then have to yeah do it properly uh, that let's get that bit right first I mean, obviously, in the case of uranium, you've got the added focus, which is health and safety. Um, but that's something you can learn on the job uh, and you'll have a proper health and safety department and a radiation department. So a lot of the things are just mining related health and safety. You can deal with all that. Yeah. So it's the only the radiation piece that if you haven't worked in uranium, you won't have up your sleeve. Yeah. But you, you can learn that. Um, yeah. and most of that is down to monitoring anyway. Um, you know, actually just monitoring the staff so on radiation impact on them continually to make sure that no one gets, you know, an overdose effectively within yeah. the guidelines. That are there. I mean, the I tell you, overdose, the guidelines are so low that you know, there's no risk in any way um, yeah. from that point of view. And so you then go into the process side and, yes, there's parts of the process side. You obviously prefer to have somebody have more experience um, related to the uranium industry because, you know, you're dealing with things like packaging. You know, again, it's very much a health and safety driven issue to make sure it's done right and properly. The leech side, IX, you know, you can take somebody with an IX experience and probably teach them more. Would you prefer guys who've got uranium experience in a plant? Yeah. I think the one area that probably you do want the skills is in the health and environmental side. Yeah. Prefer guys who've got the experience just because it's such a, a quirky commodity it has its own set of rules um yeah so you know yeah um but you know as you see i've been in all sorts so yeah you people, can eat. people learn yeah and obviously there is transferable skills but like you said there's a few areas that you probably prefer uranium people with the uranium experience just because of the nature of that commodity yeah but but you know you would like you'd love a great miner who hasn't got uranium skills rather than someone who's got uranium skills is not a great miner. Got you. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so what are your thoughts on the the sort of uranium supply and demand um, for the future and and so and how do you see it affecting the pricing in the long term? Obviously, you said you're at the bottom of the curve and waiting to turn that corner, and that corner seems to be in that still in that corner and not. Going on yeah, the not, not coming out of it. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, if you look at where we've gone since 2011 and Fukushima, global uranium generation, nuclear generation is back where it was at the same level. You've got the fastest rate of reactor builds that you've had in the last 25 years and accelerating. China's building something like eight reactors a year at the moment. Um, I think you've got an increasing sentiment drive that understands that Nuclear is important. I mean, even Poland, 100 you know, environmentalists in Poland wrote to the German government 
three weeks ago and said, please don't shut your reactors. This is not the way to look. Do it when you've shut your coal mines first. Yeah. You know, if that's the way you want to go, get rid of the coal first and then get rid of your reactors. Um, and, and I think that's where people are realizing that if you want to meet all of these global requirements under the Paris Agreement, you can't do it without nuclear reactors. They they bring in so much power so quickly. I mean, there's one reactor in California now, um, Diablo Canyon, produces more power than the whole of the California wind fleet on its own. It just sits there chugging away every day, no matter whether it's windy or not windy, it's producing power. So yeah. um, I think it's very much. So I think we're looking at good growth going out there. On the supply side, you've had a lot of production cuts now being very much driven by the constraint coming from Kazatomprom and Cameco. Cameco are having to buy metal in the market, but they've actually stopped at the moment while they wait for a, um, a ruling from the White House on a particular trade tariff issue. I think the resolution of that trade tariff issue is likely to bring buying back. Cameco have got to buy something like 14 million pounds of uranium from the market that isn't there in the market. They're struggling to meet their buying at the moment. So it's one of those where I think we're going to turn a corner very, very fast and then it will accelerate very quickly upwards. In the next five to 10 years, about 25 to 30 percent of global supply will disappear, whether that's coming from secondary sales or the closure of old mines that have reached the end of their life. We're looking at a position and the current uranium price does not justify new production. So we are going to have to see much higher pricing to allow the new supply to come on. And as anyone who's worked in this industry knows, it always takes longer than you expect to get production up and going. Yeah. And so it, it will drive the price um, yeah. forward. So, you know, we're very comfortable. We spend our time getting our project ready. We're focused on reducing the operating and capital costs again. You know, what's new? What do we learn? What's available out there that wasn't two, three, four years ago that we can apply to the project to make it better? Uh, how can we accelerate design, build, et cetera? Uh, working on debt financing um, and starting to work on offtake. Yes. And what is uranium actually used for? And what other what other products could it be used for in the future or other? Um, uh, it, it is. Yeah, it's predominantly used for nuclear energy. Okay. Um, I mean, that is almost its total use. Uh, does it have other uses? Obviously, there are medical uses, you know, x-ray machines, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, there's the unspeakable version of it as well, the military use, yeah. <laughs> of course, it sits <laughs> yeah. out there, which obviously gives us our industry a bad rap. Um, yeah. But reality is, you know, um, the main use is, is wonderful for the environment. Um, there are other uses for it. I mean, glass is one that was used historically. I mean, it does incredible things to glass, um, which are really good, but it, no one tends to go down those routes at the moment. Yeah. So it, they're predominantly used for, for generating power. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's quite a big industry for it anyway. Yeah. And obviously with technology ever changing and changing seems daily, could uranium be used in new future technologies in whatever industry that could be? Are people, uh, look, uh, are people looking at that? Uh, I'm sure they are. I, I mean, I obviously tend to focus more on where we're going for a minute. But I think that's one of the steps that's going forward in our own industry from the nuclear side, which is at the moment, most of the reactors you have are these monstrous Hinkley point size, yeah. you know, 1.3 to 2.6 gigawatt power generators. I mean, Hinkley point will produce 8% of the UK's energy in, on its own. Yeah. And it will all be clean. Um, you know, whereas... We're reaching a point where, because these projects are so big, 
it's difficult to keep inserting them into a grid system because the grids have to be so big for them. So what the new angle is, is, is what they call the small modular reactors. Now these go down to 10 megawatts. So these could be used by a mining company that needs power. They can be used by, you know, uh, remote locations um, on the Arctic, Northwest Territories, those kind of things, um, all the way up to 300 megawatts. And so these could be installed where existing coal plants are going. Uh, you can take out the old coal plant and install small reactors instead because the power grid is already there. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about the new ones as well is they're, they don't use the same level of pressurized vessels, so they're safer. They're buried in the ground. Um, they have no moving parts to them as well, um, so they're incredibly safe things. And so I see that one of the technologies is very much that new use of the new generation forms uh, of nuclear power, which will make it a lot more understandable, acceptable to general populace. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I want to hmm. uh, slowly wrap this up. Um, what's the future of GoBX and the long-term future, and where's the company? Where's the company going to and heading to? <laughs> Look, I mean, we put a pipeline of projects together with two permitted ones with a third, and they're all advanced projects. So yeah. you know, the, the logical process is that we go down, which is we build Madawella. Um, once Madawella is up and running, we go on and start building Matanga, uh, and then continue the development of Falea. And then obviously looking at exploration upside on all of those, brownfields exploration upside and development on those as well. Um, you know, so from an operational point of view, that's the logical play. Um, we obviously always recognize that somebody might, you know, in the last cycle, the three of the biggest takeout transactions were all in Africa because international governments can own projects 100% in Africa, um, which you can't do in, say, North America. Um, so, you know, there's always that scenario that's out there as well. So for us, it's, it's keep adding value through the projects, developing them. Um, and that's what our driving force is. If something happens in between, then obviously we'll examine what the opportunity is that goes with it. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you want to uh, conclude on at all? No, I think we've covered a lot there in, yeah. in those questions and hopefully I'll give you some depth behind all of them as well. Yeah, no, certainly. Well, I appreciate your time, Daniel. Um, if, our, if our audience wants to contact you, how can they go about doing that? Uh, the best one is through the, the website, um, which is info at GoVX. Um, and that way, I, it all comes to me anyway, so yeah. don't think it just gets carved, carved <laughs> out. I, I get everything, and I'm pretty good at um, responding to people. I generally reply to most of my shareholders within 48 hours. Okay, that's good. And are you on any social media platforms? No, I am a Luddite. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> GoVX okay. does have a Twitter page because I do try and a scan for interesting articles that we put out on go, on that Twitter yeah. to sort of, you know, educate people on the market, you know, and uh, there's a lot out there that you can have to look at, which explains why, you know, nuclear is a great way to go. Yeah. Uh, and we try and kind of put that out through that Twitter page. Okay, nice. Alternatively, if you want to contact Daniel, feel free to email myself and I can pass that message on. My email address is rob at mining-international.org. Um, any questions that you've got um, or any um, information that you re actually require from Daniel, pass it on. Uh, email me and I'll pass it on to Daniel. So um, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed uh, this podcast. And until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep the mining podcast 
If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.